Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Prisoner's Pardon Podcast, a weekly podcast designed to help you put aside any doubts to the realness of spiritual prisons. As always, what these prisons look like and their dynamics will be the topic with the end goal to help anyone escape using the insight that will be brought to you here. Michi J will be your host, and she's the author of the book A Prisoner's Pardon, which this podcast is an outgrowth of. Please be advised this show will be only giving an account of personal experiences and testimonies. Each individual is different and in no way advising how to specifically address a particular person's situation. We ask that you always seek the advice of a pastor and or other authority for assistance. Now, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone. This is Michi J from A Prisoner's Pardon Podcast. Now, everyone, have you ever felt intimidated with starting something new or you just don't know what your purpose is or are you finding it difficult to finish something that you started or maybe you you have some sort of ailment or condition that's trying to take over your life well we have a guest here who has a great approach to help with that his name is terry tucker remember now iron sharpens iron now folks Terry is really sharp. Listeners, let me list. I can't even tell you everything Terry has done. Now, listen how sharp he is, you all. He was a NCAA basketball player. He was a marketing. He was in marketing at Wendy's International. He was in hospital administration, a service manager for a publishing company. Yes, I'm still going on, okay? I'm running out of breath too. A police officer in undercover narcotics investigator. And also he was a SWAT hostage negotiator. Wow. Now he even has owned his own business as a school security consultant. He's coached high school basketball. He's a cancer survivor. And guess what? He's also, also an author in which we will talk about his new book. So, Terry, what have I missed? <laughs> I don't know. Listening to you say that, it kind of makes me figure out, you know, one of these days I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. You know? <laughs> wow, Terry. I mean, like most people... Like me, we, we're, we're stuck. Well, I shouldn't say stuck, but we, we're, we're doing the same job or we're, we're just branching out. And you are, have went around the world. You've lived all over the country as well. Illinois, you, you were born in Chicago? Correct. Said? I'm born and raised in Chicago. So I was like, oh, we got something in common. <laughs> Absolutely. And now you're in Colorado, right? Correct. Okay. Wow. This, that is awesome. You have had a lot of different positions. And what I want to ask you is first that, um, what do you believe your purpose is in life? Well, I I think early on when I got out of college, I I really felt my my purpose or my passion was to be in law enforcement. But My grandfather was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. So he was in Chicago during the Great Depression. He was in Chicago during Prohibition when alcohol was outlawed in the United States. He was in Chicago during uh, the gangs, you know, Al Capone and that shooting up the city. 
And he was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It was not a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the knock. Well, he doesn't remember this. He remembers the stories my grandmother told about the knock on the door and, you know, the command staff saying, Mrs. Tucker, please grab your son and come with us. Your husband's been shot. So when I said, you know, I would like to go into law enforcement, my dad was like, absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You're going to get out, get a job in business, get married, have 2.4 kids and live in the suburbs. You know, I mean, yeah, my dad had my whole life planned out, but it was the life that he wanted me to lead. So he was sick. He actually had cancer when I graduated from college. So if you notice, as you mentioned, my first two jobs in the marketing department at Wendy's and in hospital administration, those were business jobs because I didn't want to upset him. And I waited. I sort of joke. I, I waited and did what every good son did <laughs> until my father passed away. And, and I followed my dreams. Oh, wow. And what did you I saw that and I was just I, I, ha, I have your book, by the way. Thank you. And it is excellent, an excellent read that I'm really enjoying. And I don't want to give it away, but um, I really like your Rocky, <laughs> your your reference to Rocky. And I was like, I need to go back and look at this because it, it was, I, I like all, every point that you made about that. So which leads me to what are your four truths and how you, um, how you, how did you come up with them? You mentioned the four truths in your book. How did you come up with them? So um, I guess I need to give you a quick background. In, in 2012, I was diagnosed with a, a rare form of melanoma mm -hmm. that appeared on the bottom of my foot. And I had multiple surgeries to take the tumor out of my foot and also to remove the lymph nodes in my groin. And when I healed, I was put on a weekly injection of a drug called interferon that basically gave me severe flu-like symptoms for two to three days every week. And I took those interferon injections, those weekly injections for almost five years. So imagine having the flu every week for five years. And that was just for me to keep the disease from coming back. That was not going to be a cure. When that stopped in 2017, uh, the disease came back. I had my left foot amputated in 2018. 2019, the disease came back again, had two more surgeries. And then last year, <clears throat> excuse me, an undiagnosed tumor in my ankle grew large enough that it fractured my tibia, my shin bone. And my only recourse right in the middle of the pandemic was to have my left leg amputated above the knee. And I also found out I had tumors in my lungs. So for the last nine years, I've been dealing with this sort of cancer journey. And, mm -hmm. and I've learned these four truths during that journey. And, and I'll give them to you. They're, they're just one sentence each. I have them on a post-it note. <laughs> I do. I have them on a post-it note that I have. You know, I see you know multiple times you know during the day when I'm sitting at my desk. So Number one is you need to control your mind or your mind will control you. Number two is you need to embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and mm -hmm. use that to make you a stronger and more determined individual. Number three is more of a legacy truth. And it's this, it's what we leave behind 
is what we weave in the hearts of other people. And then number four is pretty self-explanatory. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. So those are my four truths. They work for me. They may not work for other people, but if there's something in there that works for you, please feel free to use it. (laughs) I think I really, I love all of them, by the way. And I especially love number four. Um, As long as you don't quit, you'll never be defeated. Because, you know, I find that people, um, they think, success looks one way but it long as you never quit and you keep doing it and you keep getting back up and your battle with cancer I think it was what nine years over nine years yes and it's um it you you are in a unique position to to help us you know we we, you know get through the pain because you know a lot of us we don't like pain (laughs) so it's like oh no but you 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 just really got it it's like you just embraced it and how you said embrace that pain and understand that you have to do those things to get where you where you're going because I really like that you expose those truths right up front and help people to get through those things. Now, now, did you have a point in your life when you felt hopeless? Several times, actually. <laughs> you know, there, there, were, there were many times during that five-year, almost five-year journey through, through Interferon that I, I was so sick and just felt so lousy that I, I literally, I prayed to die. I, you know, I was just like, come on, God, just be done with this and, and just take me and let's move on. And I, th- there've been a couple things that I've learned along the way about hopelessness and helplessness. There was a, a professor back in, at the John Hopkins University in the 1950s who did an experiment with rats. And what he did is he took rats and he put them in water that were over their heads. So they had to tread water. And most of them treaded water initially for about 15 minutes. And just as they were about to go under, he grabbed the rats and he pulled them out, dried them off, let them rest for a while. And then he put them back in the same water. How long do you think they treaded water the second time he put them in there? Longer? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, much longer. As a matter of fact, They treaded water for, on average, for 60 hours. Now, that told me two things. One, the importance of all of us of having hope. Because those rats knew the first time, you know, I was going to sink. I was at the end of it. I couldn't do any more. But yet somebody rescued me. Somebody gave me hope and pulled me out and dried me off and let me rest. So that was the first thing I learned. And the second thing I learned is that 60 hours, the amount of of damage or the, the amount of time, the amount of what, what we think we can do is so much more than our minds will allow us to do. There's a, there's a Navy SEAL, some of the toughest men in the world, uh, I guess a rule called the 40% rule. And what it says for them is if you're at the end of your rope, you don't think you can run another mile or do another push up or whatever it is that you're only at 40% and you still have another 60% left to give to yourself. 
So when I think about helplessness and hopelessness, I think about those two stories about how there were times, there was a time when I was laying in the emergency room thinking I was having a heart attack and I'd been through a lot of drug treatment and I was just exhausted. And I remember looking at my, my wife who was sitting right with me with literally tears coming down my cheeks and I just begged her to let me die. I'm like, just, just get me out of this body that continually seems to be attacking me. So those were a couple instances where, where I felt hopeless. And those were stories that I kind of remembered that helped me get through that. Wow. It's that, yeah, I remember reading that too in your book and where I know that was just a, a low point, but thank God that here you are and you have this incredible book. And um, I read how you kind of, you know, you started it. You said uh, it was a college. Was he a nephew, I believe, who asked you about it, um, asked you for some advice? He was getting out of, he was just leaving college? Or Yeah, actually, the, the book kind of was born out of two stories. One was um, just a young man from college. He really had no relation to me. Oh, okay. But, but he connected with on LinkedIn. And he said, you know, what do you think are the things that I need to learn to be successful, not only in, in my job or in business, but in life in general? And, and I didn't want to give him the, you know, get up early, work hard. <laughs> help. You know, yeah. Not that those aren't important. Those are incredibly important, but I'm, I just kind of felt they'd been done. And I wanted to see if I could give him something that maybe went deeper, you know, maybe kind of went into his soul, so to speak. So I spent some time and I, I wrote notes. Actually, I came up with these 10 principles, these 10 ideas, and I sent them to him. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of stepped back and I was like, you know, I got a life story that fits underneath this principle, or I know somebody's life who emulates this principle. And so during the three and a half months or so after I had my leg amputated and before I started chemotherapy for the tumors in my lungs, when I was healing, I literally sat down at the computer and started to build stories under each of the principles. And, and that's kind of how the book came about. Wow. And, and when, when did you write this? Uh, last year came out, uh, October, it's been almost a year, came out October of 2020. Okay. So you wrote it right during COVID. I, I did. I, I wrote it from about April of last year till about June. It took me about three and a half months to write it. Wow. It's that, that's good too, to write the book. And this is good to have that done in such a short amount of time as well. You keep, keep doing stuff. When are you going to stop? Terry, are you going to stop? When I die? <laughs> I, I mean, really, I, I, I'm one of those people that I like to be learning right up to the moment that I die. And that's what we should be doing. Um, as our Lord um, says, we, in, in case he comes back and he should find us working and you are a true example of that. So I must ask you too about your time as a police officer, especially sure. the SWAT one. Now uh, this, this podcast, we deal a lot with um, physical prisons as well as spiritual and you you're you touch on both sides actually and could you give us a little insight into 
your background as a undercover narcotics officer and SWAT team negotiator, what would be some of the things that you would think will help a person that's that's struggling um, with being in and out of prison? Like, yeah. Yeah, I, I I can I can give you a couple things that I think might help. I you know as as a police officer, most of what we did was face to face. So whether it's writing a traffic ticket or whether it's responding on a radio run for you know a domestic violence situation, whatever it was, the people we were dealing with were were there with us. They were in the room. They were they were at the scene, and we could look at you know visual clues that they might be doing you know if, if, if we're talking to them and they're they're kind of looking around you know you might say oh they, they might be looking to escape or to run or Ooh. you know if, if they're balling up their fists or something you know maybe they're getting ready to fight and when you see those you can you can do whatever is appropriate you can sit them down you can handcuff them you can put them in the back of your car whatever is appropriate for the reason that you're <coughs> excuse me that you're there mm-hmm. but as negotiators we were not with the person. So we had to figure out what was going on based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And, and there, was a, there was a movie many years ago called The Negotiator, and it starred Samuel L. Jackson. I know that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I always get asked about that. It's like, is that the way it was? No, that, <laughs> that's not the way it was. So what? yeah, I hate to burst your bubble on that, but so if I'm negotiating with somebody, there's somebody sitting, there's another negotiator sitting right next to me, passing me notes on things. And then there's probably three or four more negotiators that are kind of gleaning intelligence. They're out, you know, if, if somebody's barricaded, they're talking to their spouse or their, or their mother or whoever it is, you know, why is this going on? What's happening? You know, if they had person had a fight with their mother and, and they're barricaded in the house, I might get a note that says, you know, don't mention his mother. Like, okay, you know, so so it's more of a of a team effort. Oh. But you get to the point. One of the big things, and this is true, I think, in any relationship, whether it's a personal relationship, a business relationship, whatever. The importance of trust, and we never lied to people as negotiators. I mean, people would tell us, you know, look, I'll I'll put the gun down and I'll come out but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And it's like, well, sorry, you know, when you come out, you are going to go to jail. And then you would try to deflect the conversation into something more positive for the person. But that was, the trust was a big deal. And the other thing is, is you kind of had to put yourself out there. You know, sometimes we talk to a guy for two hours about A, whatever that, whatever A was, but the real problem that we were there for was B. And we never even talked about B, but that person needed to burn off some of that emotional energy before they were ready to kind of transition and talk about, you know, B or whatever, you know, the, the problem was. And about 90% of the time we were successful in resolving the situation peacefully, bringing the person out. But there was about 10% of the time where, unfortunately, the person made their decision to end their life. And I, I always felt bad about that, but I never lost any sleep over that. And, and the reason I didn't was because one, I knew I had great training. 
Two, I knew I did the best that I could to try to help that person. And three, you're asking me to come to a situation where, let's face it, if you're talking to me, it's probably the worst day of your life. <laughs> I mean, really. And about a problem that very well may have been festering for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And you want me to solve it in, you know, now you're in a crisis and I'm going to solve it in, you know, two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours, whatever it is. You know, I, I did the best I could. But again, we're all responsible for our own selves. And as tragic as it was, sometimes people decided that that, that was the end for them. And that, that was always terrible because there was always one thing I always remembered as a police officer that no matter who I was arresting, whether it was somebody for murder or somebody for selling dope or whatever it was, that person had someone somewhere who loved them, who cared about them, you know, who wanted the best for them, even though they were making poor, poor choices and poor decisions. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of a little, a little feel of at least the negotiator part. Mm -hmm. The the undercover part was a little more interesting, especially since yeah, you can't tell this from my voice, but I'm six foot eight inches tall. Wow, you're tall, Terry. Yeah, I, exactly. And and I never changed my appearance when I was in the drug unit. I never grew a beard or grew how my hair you, long. You kind of stick out, though. I don't know how you was undercover. I really don't. And here's I'll tell you how because. <laughs> The thing that motivates that industry, and it is an industry, is greed. And as long as you have money, you'll find somebody that will sell you drugs. And so, I, you know, it was a little bit more difficult for me because I didn't kind of look like a typical doper. But I mean, I remember one time I had a, one of the day shift people said, I was a policeman in Cincinnati, Ohio, said, you know, we've got these kids coming down from Dayton, Ohio, that want to sell mushrooms, psychedelics, and we need somebody to buy from them. So I posed as a professor of metallurgy. I don't know anything about metal other than you put it out. In the they rain. are weird. I used to work with metallurgists. They're, they're weird. Go ahead. They are. I, I mean, I, I know anything about it. So I met these kids in the park, you know, bought their mushrooms. And instead of partying in Cincinnati, they partied at the Hamilton County Justice Center that night for selling an undercover cop drugs. <laughs> oh, wow. But, you know, um, going back to what you said as a negotiator, uh -huh. you had you had special training, right? We did. We, we trained every month. We did scenario based training. We, we had a psychologist that worked with us and things like that. Um, yeah, we, we did quite a bit of training. Wow. That sounds good, because I, I was going to say, have you been peeping at my book? You know, because. <laughs> I, you know, I have a brother that's um, been in and out of prison since we were young, you oh. know, and we're twins. And sometimes you will get some officers that don't um, understand what you just said. And that was one of the things I was saying in the book is we need more officers that know how to talk to family members. So and the way you just spoke as a negotiator, that's perfect. That is perfect because I'm pretty sure, you know, a lot of family members um, 
know that it's things that need to be addressed, but it's also some family members that you see always in the news that seem to have some blinders on. They know that their loved one needs help and they're in um, not just a crisis, but in very in a very lot of trouble right now. So very much trouble. So, and, and I just wanted to make sure that I build relationships with, you know, lawmakers, you know, ex-police officers, um, probably some senators or whoever that's still in the business. But, you know, these things we want to, you know, talk about, about reforms and stuff. But what your book is will help them if they read what you have here and overcome. One thing I really like about what you're doing here, you, you don't act like a victim. <laughs> so you... In which is the next question I have is, is there any common denominator that has helped you overcome the traumas that you faced in life? Because you're not a victim at all. You don't seem like a victim. No, I, I, I try not to be. I, I, I mean, we're, we're all going to experience pain in our lives. Pain is inevitable. And it doesn't have to be pain like mine, like, you know, cancer or terminal illness or, or even a chronic illness. I mean, it could be flunk a test in school or you break up with your boyfriend <laughs> or your girlfriend, or, you know, you don't get the promotion at work that, that you expect you're, you're, you're going to get. Pain is inevitable. Suffering, on the other hand, that's optional. That's what you do with that pain. Do you use that pain to make you a stronger and more determined individual? Or do you wallow in it and ask people to feel sorry for you and feel sorry for yourself? Now, I, I want your audience to understand that, hey, I, 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 there's no S on my chest. I don't have a cape and fly around with magical powers. I have bad days. I mean, there are days that I cry. There are days that I get down. There are days that I feel sorry for myself. I just don't let myself stay in those situations. Because like I said, pain is inevitable. Suffering is what you do with that pain. And if you go back to that second truth about embracing the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life, if you think about it, our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. So most people want to get away from pain, want to run from pain. And some people run, you know, to, do, to doing bad things. You know, they, they drink too much or they get on drugs or they engage in behavior that's not good for them. What I'm saying is instead of running from it, Use it, flip it inside, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a stronger and more determined individual. Don't run from it, take it and use it to your benefit. Wow, I've never heard it put like that before. You know, you, you distinguished between suffering and pain. Wow, so yeah. pain is inevitable. Suffering, suffering is optional. Optional. Okay. <laughs> now, everyone, Terry's book is Sustainable Excellence, the 10 principles to leading your uncommon and extraordinary life. Wow, Terry. So is this book available? I, I got it off Amazon. Yeah, it's, it's available pretty much anywhere you can get a book online. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it on barnesandnoble.com. You can get it on Apple iBooks. Anywhere online, you can get a book. You can get Sustainable Excellence. You can also go to my website, which is motivationalcheck.com, and you can, you can get it there as well. Wow. This is 
a keeper, you guys. He he is on target with each and every one of them. He, the storylines, Terry, the, the stories. I love um, the letter from your dad um, that had me almost in tears. <laughs> so Certainly had me in tears when it happened, let me tell you. I was like, oh, he got a letter from his daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, anyway, Terry, is there anything else you want to say to our audience here about um, what it is to be you and how we can get a semblance of how how to do this besides getting your book or um, just whatever? What's what's your last things you want to say here before we um, uh, end our program today? Sure. I'll I'll leave you with a story. I've always been a a big fan of Westerns growing up. You know, my parents would let me stay up and watch Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and things like that. Mm -hmm. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out Mm -hmm. and it starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wider. Very famous movie. A lot of people have seen it. And Wyatt Earp and Doc Holliday were two living, breathing human beings who walked on the face of the earth. They were not made up characters just for the movie. And Doc was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much he was a gunslinger and a card shark. And (laughs) Wyatt had been a lawman his entire life. And yet these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds formed this very close friendship. And at the end of the movie, Doc Holliday is dying at a sanitarium in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live and the real Doc Holliday died in that sanitarium and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. But the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says he was in love with his cousin when he was younger and she joined a convent over the affair, but she was all he ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal there's just life and get on with living yours. You know, Michelle, you and I know people who are sitting back waiting on their lives. You know, if this happens, I'll have a normal life. If that happens, I'll have a successful life. If this happens, I'll have an influential life. Don't wait on your life to come to you. Figure out why you were put on the face of this earth. Figure out why God put you here. Find your purpose and live that. And if you do, when you come to the end of your life, You'll be so much more happy and you'll have a whole lot more peace. And I'll leave it at that. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Excellent story and a great um, way to the end the show. Well, thank you so much. Um, it was great having you here as a guest. And we hope to have you again when you write your next book, because I'm sure you have another book in you. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope so. Thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to a Prisoner's Pardon podcast with Mishi J. We pray that you've been blessed by today's episode. We ask that you please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Don't wait. Subscribe now so you'll be automatically notified when a new show is aired. Because it very well may have been the show that gives you the answers you've been searching for. Now, if you suspect you're in a spiritual prison, Mishi J has provided a questionnaire on how to tell if you're in one. Free of charge, she's providing this to our listeners. Just go to the episode show notes and download this valuable resource. Now, until our next inspiring show, God bless.